and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast and welcome. We are so excited to have you here today. If you're new, if you're returning, all the same, welcome. Thank you for your time and your attention today. We'll be discussing Garden by the Sea, a novel by Catalan writer Merce Rodoreda. This novel was written between 1959 and 1966, uh, while Rodoreda was working as a seamstress and writing on the side. Love that uh, backstory there. This book was translated by a mother-daughter duo. I have the open letter edition of the book. Uh, at the University of Rochester, and the translators are Martha Tennant and Marusa Rolano, and they have done a lot of Rotorita's work, so I'm so glad that I am able to read it, uh, if not in the original Catalan one day, at least in English for now. This novel was magnificent. I just have to start by saying that if there is a novel I have reviewed this year that I would recommend my listeners to read, it would be this novel. Uh, and the reason why is this novel is peace. And it is so comforting to read. Um, it's The whole thing is like a meditation, and I understand that a lot of people would, wouldn't like that maybe, especially... It reads like Hemingway, it reads like Fitzgerald, it reads like the mid-20th century at its height in in world literature, um, but it is just so graceful. And if there's anything we need right now as a culture, it's that grace and that peace that I got from this novel and that this novel really breathes. I received this novel as a part of the Boxwalla book box, and I'll be reviewing that in the coming months. Um, I bought the book box myself, so this is not sponsored in any way by them. Um, but I'm so glad, again, that I got my hands on this novel, that it was essentially, you know, plopped on my doorstep after I purchased the uh, book box. And, uh, it, you know, Spanish literature, I will admit, is a huge area of deficit in my personal reading, and so I'm super glad that I was able to read a little bit more and get more into Spanish literature, Catalan literature as well. Regarding the plot of the novel, essentially it's a novel about a gardener, <laughs> and, and this gardener has lived on the, the estate of this house right next to the ocean for years and years, and he lives there year-round, and he has this very simple but so, like I said, elegant mode of description when he describes the changing of the seasons and the cycling in and out of people in the seasons, the owners of the house cycling in and out, and the neighbors and the other help and staff that are coming on. And so it's a really beautiful lapse of time and it just ebbs and flows like the water. And I'll be reading passages from this book 
throughout the episode, so you can hopefully get a sense, not only from my words, but from Mercedes Rodoreda herself, um, the way that this gardener just flows when he thinks and when he's narrating. Page 21. One morning, as I was planting a bed of angel trumpets and pulmoneras, a couple of chucks arrived with a master builder, masons, and a few pick and shovel laborers. They started laying the foundation for the new villa next door. When the foundation was moving along, the gentleman who had made his fortune in the Americas, a man by the name of Bellum, returned. He was wearing a white linen suit with a pink carnation in his lapel. The pulmoneras were looking somewhat stunted, and I replaced them with Veronica's, not without worrying that their shadow might ruin my angel trumpets. Senor Bellum went about pestering everyone, as if he were going to build a villa himself. The first day, he said to me, What are you planting? Veronica's, I said. I love how the prose just flows. <laughs> we're going to start by talking off about character in the novel and, and what more central passage than getting a bit of dialogue, uh, prose rather, from this gardener. Uh, this gardener has a really interesting backstory. He has, like I said, he lived and has lived on the estate for years and years and years. He has a little cottage on the grounds of the estate and he's lived there since he got back from serving in some war when he was younger. He married a woman who was also part of the help for a time and she got sick and passed away. And so he lives by himself a very quiet life, but also he is an eavesdropper. <laughs> he definitely circulates a lot of drama uh, in his own narrative. And he has, it's like he's performing for an audience, but <laughs> the audience is us. The audience is no one in his world. And so it's, a peaceful life, but it's filled with minute changes that I find to be really interesting. And the day-to-day -day, uh, isn't what's spectacular about the novel. It's these little changes that this gardener is so perceptive to. In terms of character development, he definitely uh, makes some decisions and things throughout the book that are surprising, at least they were to me. For example, there's a monkey that comes uh, to the estate by way of someone who brought it to there and it was sort of a pet. The monkey's name is Titi and he has opinions about Titi that I feel are misplaced and perhaps misguided uh, because this monkey is so mischievous and he really hates the monkey, as everyone does, uh, yet when it dies, he... It's interesting, he has this value for life that is, above all else, what motivates him. And the plants are of his concern, and him looking at the new neighbor's garden, and sort of looking at, okay, he's they're not really taking care of the grounds well, they're not laying out the garden well as he would, and they're not um, really taking after and taking care of that life in the way that he would want it to be taken care of. Um, he talks extensively about the horses that come to the property and 
different aspects and character traits about them, how one is quite ornery and how one gets lazy and how beautiful they are. He notes a lot about the different dramas, uh, these different threads going on throughout different people's lives, and he really doesn't treat the main masters of the house, so to speak, any differently in his narrative than he treats, for example, the cook or himself, which I find to be really interesting because even though there are these people around him with such disparate lifestyles and disparate points of view, he looks at all of them with the same observant eye that is unquestioning for the most part, and I just found it to be not passive, but very accepting of things. The young couple who has bought the house by the sea, they are quite rambunctious and uh, they have quite a few problems as well, and those problems date way back to before they were married, which is a story we hear quite late in the novel where the woman, she was practically engaged to a young man named Eugenie, who was her neighbor, basically her brother, and he wasn't rich enough for her. And so she starts courting this new guy, the master of the house, and they get married, and all of this happens. They almost have a child, and she does not want the child, and it doesn't uh, get carried through for some reason or other. I think she loses the child. Um, and there are these friends, there's a painter, two painters actually, one is a woman who experiments with painting and then becomes more famous than the actual painter in the group, um, there's a ski instructor that comes, of course the person who takes care of the horses, cooks, maids, there's a maid in particular named Miranda that's quite... Um, annoying to me, <laughs> but uh, she's quite evasive in the sense that she does a lot of scandalous things with the master of the household and is really parading around with the group as if she were a part of the main household and not a maid, all these things. So very interesting story there. Um, there's also a man who does a lot of hunting and expo expositions and things of that sort in Africa who comes for a time until he gets killed. So there are all these eclectic, interesting people cycling in and out, um, the service people and the masters and their friends all included. And um, later on, the story becomes captivated by way of the gardener becoming captivated with this young man, Eugenie, who comes back and essentially the the almost myth, it's very mythologized in, in the novel. The myth is that apparently Eugenie, he's devastated, right, that this woman would take another man over him for wealth. He says, I will come back. And in five years, or however long, you know, I, I say, I will come back for you and you will not refuse me the second time. And he's come back the husband of this major businessman, um, Senor Bellum. And uh, he has this beautiful bride, young bride, 
uh, 20 years old, quite young couple uh, as well. And Eugenie starts to open up a relationship with the woman, the master of the gardener's household again, not in any particularly intimate way from how I was reading the, sub the subtext of the novel from the gardener's perspective, um, but talking with her nonetheless and talking with her secretly at night a la The Great Gatsby, we'll get to that. Uh, and Eugenie is a very unpredictable character in the novel. He is the one that most interested me, actually, aside from the gardener, and I'm sure that if you all read the novel, he would also be quite captivated by Eugenie. Um, he's in and out. He's very flustered as a person. He seems to be quite spontaneous in a lot of what he does, and it seems like he has these emotional traumas regarding this young woman that he has not gotten over uh, and to the extent that he's poisoning himself with these traumas. And the gardener sees that in him, sees the unsettling nature of having a relationship with Eugenie as Eugenie takes an interest in the gardener and gets closer to him and starts assisting him on, ra on random jobs and such like this. They have dinner together a few times and so um, there's just this, this part of Eugenie that doesn't want to hold on to things. He's fleeting. It's like he can't get a grip on reality or on other people. The gardener very much wants to understand Eugenie and listen to him and piece together some things about Eugenie and his backstory, which is all shrouded in different people's perspectives on the matter. For example, of course, Senor Bellum has a story to tell about Eugenie, who was a worker for him before they he married his uh, Senor Bellum's daughter. Uh, he, the gardener, also meets Eugenie's parents. They come looking for him. They say, "Where is our son? We have we haven't seen him for five years <laughs> or however long." And the gardener is as much entranced as he is perplexed by this young man who, again, is just seems like he's just drifting. Seems like he's really uninterested in developing in, and setting goals and things like this that most people are. It's, it's like he's lost all motivation. And Eugenie does end up passing away and the circumstances behind that, of course we see everything from the gardener's perspective, which is something that I love about this novel because it's not impartial. It's so entrenched and so mired in the gardener's perspective that we really have to see and we really um, must interpret events like Eugenie's death from the gardener's perspective because what else do we have? There's no impartiality in the story as beautiful and remote and seemingly objective as it is. Um, and so, you know, there's the question of, does Eugenie kill himself? And I think, well, it seems likely, right? It, it happens after a party. There's uh, the rowboat that the mistress and her master are uh, painting and, and etc. So there's 
a lot of symbolism in the death and him dying in the water and being found in the way he was found. Um, and there's so much mystery and I think that part of the gardener's struggle with Eugenie himself as well as his death is that the gardener doesn't have enough to pinpoint things about Eugenie that you know any theories or whatever and that's not to say that people are puzzles to be solved I think actually the opposite people are to be loved and to be heard um, but the gardener just doesn't have enough basis for any of that. Page 109. Everyone dressed for dinner. Two orchestras came and everyone danced. There was frolicking, shouting, lots of colorful paper lanterns. As soon as the night closed in, I stood watch by the boxwood hedge, trying my best not to miss a thing. Dinner was served on a multitude of small tables festooned with bouquets of exotic flowers. From afar, I couldn't tell if they were real. The swimming pool was lit from within. I had never seen a pool like that before, lit on the inside. Senorita Rosmaria sat next to Senor Bellum, and Senorette Francesque was at another table next to Maribel. Eugenie was with a gentleman with a bushy, blonde beard. With all the coming and going of servants, I missed a lot. It looked like it was going to be a drawn-out affair, so I sat sideways on the balustrade between the two flower pots. It was sort of like arriving late at the Excelsior and being, being given a seat with a column in front of it. When the dance started, it was so lovely. They all twirled around the swimming pool that was lit from the inside. Then all the tables were removed except one long one that was for drinks, and the Japanese couple did a ballroom number, a dance I mean, and everyone stood in a circle around them, and my attention waned. That was page 109. I wanted to talk about cross comparisons because I really think that this book can be best understood, if not from a first account, first hand account of reading it, by looking at literature that's highly similar to this. Um, and I mentioned some before. The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, uh, the way that he describes the sea and the countryside in that novel is extremely similar. The sentences are quite short and simple. Uh, I read a, an analysis that's forthcoming, by the way. <laughs> we are going to do more Didion on this show. Um, I read an analysis of Hemingway's work by Joan Didion in a new essay collection, which I can't get too much into it because it's one of my favorites now and I'm going to review it soon, so again, something to look forward to. Um, and she noted that one of the beautiful things about Hemingway's writing and one of the maybe the most frustrating things as well uh, because of the caliber of the writing is is that Hemingway doesn't use words more than a couple syllables in length, like two or three syllables. And he repeats and he's circular. And that's those are all things that are extremely present in this book. Um, I would say the, the cadence of the, the writing, which again, I'll get to in, in the third section of this show, um, the, ca the cadence of the writing isn't like Hemingway's. It has words that are a bit more complex, especially with all of the Spanish borrowed words that are in the text untranslated. However, that circular tautological aspect of the, the reasoning of this gardener 
as well as just the flow of the narrative coming back and forth to the garden and outwards to the garden and outwards to other people and to the gardener um, is extremely similar to Hemingway's writing and it, it was a really jarring but also highly interesting comparison to make as I was walking through the novel of thinking I have read this somewhere <laughs> and it was it's it's in Hemingway's writing um, and that's not to say that you know Rotorita's writing is like copying Hemingway or something it could have been the opposite for all I know um, but I will say that both of their writing is so similar and I think it's valuable to look at the similarities and see why is this effective and why are these similarities making me as a reader have so much more conscience when I'm reading this book. Other similarities, gosh I just think of the lost generation when I'm reading this kind of literature. It's highly impressionistic but it's also, it has this simplicity to it that you would find in um, Not the Lost Generation, Cormac McCarthy's work, for example. Uh, I think of All the Pretty Horses. Not my favorite book of literature ever, but definitely the way this is narrated has that kind of uh, flawlessness, flawedness or uh, seeming objectivity to it that is just so blunt. And it kinda, you just sit with these sentences and I find that part really interesting. Um, going back to The Lost Generation, Fitzgerald's writing, I definitely see some tender of the night in this book. Um, there's so much of The Great Gatsby. I mean, you can really, when you talk about Fitzgerald, separate out The Great Gatsby from his other works, um, but I see so much of The Great Gatsby in this novel, uh, especially with regard to the plot. I'm gonna read that passage in a minute, but just so much of Eugenie's story and how he goes from rags to riches. He's sort of in this like nouveau riche category where people don't uh, exactly respect him. It's not necessarily as much of a commentary on society as The Great Gatsby is, especially targeted uh, as much as The Great Gatsby is targeted to uh, American audiences and things that were going on in America at that time. But there's just so many similarities in terms of the plot. <laughs> um, for example, Eugenie, when he comes back, he meets, he asks the gardener, who is uh, in place of Nick at this moment in the plot, uh, if he could meet with the mistress, uh, Rosemaria, in the gardener's house. And he gets so nervous, as uh, Gatsby does when he's waiting for Daisy to arrive. And he's pacing about, he's asking, do you think she's gonna come? Do you think she's late? She should be here by now. Is everything okay? Are the arrangements okay? All of this. And uh, of course the ending turns out quite, quite differently um, than The Great Gatsby. That's one reason to read it. Um, but yeah, just so many similarities that I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> how beautiful. And it also colors your your perception and your understanding of the plot and the characters to make those juxtapositions and um, to sort of lay that tracing paper on top of the plot and see how it fits. Another comparison that Boxwalla made, I remember in their little pamphlet about the book, the two books that they sent, um, was the series, the, the series Downton Abbey. 
I'm more of a film person than a TV series person, but I will say that I've seen the entirety of Downton Abbey. I was really obsessed with it when it was popular in like 2015 or 2016 or so. And I can definitely see that in the ways that the, the lives of not only the family, but also the servants are documented. There's ex occasional excursions into town. There's a barkeeper, an innkeeper that is quite popular with the gardener and with the master. And there's a, an excursion to see Eugenie's parents and so forth. So there's a lot of that kind of documentation aspect of Downton Abbey, where it's sort of drama to drama and there's lots of different perspectives and individuals involved. I'm sure you just heard it in the quote that I read, all these names that you're like, you didn't tell me who these people were in your summary description. No, I didn't. And because everything is revolving so fast in the social milieu of this novel, um, and it's beautiful. So I'm going to read the passage that reminds me so much of The Great Gatsby, and you guys can let me know in the comments below, on Patreon, wherever, uh, what you think of my comparison. If you think it's founded, if you think it's total nonsense, let me know by this passage. Page 152. He wasn't listening. He listened only to what was happening outside. I asked him if he wanted us to go out for a moment. Yes, but let's not go far. We went outside and I suggested we stroll along the Linden Promenade. She would be coming that way. She probably wouldn't dare to come by the greenhouse because then she would have to walk past the stable and Tony's quarters. He wouldn't hear of it. The night was thick with the scent of honeysuckle. Suddenly he squeezed my arm, and when he released it, he said he thought he had seen a shadow. And the nightingale began to sing for all it was worth. It was almost two o'clock. She must be on her way down. He kept checking his watch. He held it to his ear to make sure it was ticking. It used to be that when you arranged a time to meet, she must be on her way now. You go on, and when she leaves, I'll come for you. We'll meet on the Belvedere. The only thing that came was three o'clock, then four. And then the first streamers of dawn were brightening the sky. When he left me at five, he looked like he belonged in the cemetery. Can you catch The Great Gatsby in that? Maybe it's because we've reviewed The Great Gatsby probably three times on this show. Two, at least twice. I can think of two distinct times, maybe a third. Um, <laughs> and I've read it so many times. It's such a seminal work in American literature and... Uh, I think very important and very poignant um, a work just to understand that whole culture that was going on in the 1920s that maybe we are uh, circling back to as we get farther into the 20s in this century. And the last quote I'll leave you with today, uh, talking a little bit more about the writing style of this novel, which I found so instructive and so wonderful for my own writing as I was walking through this. Um, on page 135. It's just a description here. The outings on horseback resumed. Senorita Rosmaria dressed in black from head to toe, pullover, trousers, and boots. Senorita Maribel, as if for effect, wore a cloth skirt, untucked, and a wide-brimmed straw hat of the kind used by reapers. Eugenie's ensemble matched Maribel's. And that's how they trapezed about, some of them pranked out in their best clothes and putting on airs, others looking like gypsies. Flexta grew somewhat testy, 
I never said anything to him, but whenever he saw me, he would jerk his head and raise his front legs, first one, then the other. Sometimes I gave him a carrot, though Tony had forbidden it. One morning, bright and early, I went down to the Belvedere on, to water the geraniums. A few cuttings were starting to flower, a vinegar brown mottling on their round leaves, the flowers redder than fresh blood. Eugenie and Senorita Maribel were standing below me on the beach looking like a couple of tramps. The red rowboat was turned upside down and they were repainting it the same color. It had not been used for several years and no one had given it another thought. Eugenie saw me at once. I'm hard-pressed to characterize precisely the quiet of this book and the peace of it, as I said in the beginning. And in truth, it comes from all of the factors that I've talked about today happening simultaneously <laughs> within the writing. The simplicity, the fake objectivity of this gardener, the tautology of the ideas, and the interchange especially of uh, these different scenes and these different people coming and going like the tide. As you have seen throughout the quotes in this episode, there's the garden and then the garden is not there in the narrative. Then it goes back to the garden and the flowers and the colors and what it looks like and what it feels like to be with the gardener planting them. And then someone diverts his attention elsewhere. And then the horses come and then Titi comes all in perpetual motion. So if I haven't convinced you yet, I will make one last plea you should read this novel. It was really such a pleasure to be able to read it when I was going to bed or in the morning, during the day. I, again, would just highly recommend it. It has sparked a an interest that I didn't know I had in Spanish literature, so look forward to more Spanish literature being looked at and reviewed on the show, also on Patreon, patreon.com slash relevance of literature. And that is all for today. I hope that this episode was compelling. And again, thank you so much for your time and for your attention. It means the world. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.